Hello, I'm Peter Bess. Welcome to Meet the Expert, the series of podcasts on swine health management in practice brought to you by Beringer Ingelheim. In an earlier ex- episode of Meet the Expert, I've been talking to Dr. Clayton Johnson in the United States about acclimation or acclimatization of new gilts for their introduction to the swine breeding unit, such as by managing their immunity to resident infections. Now in this episode, we'll continue that conversation by discussing among other things the facilities and feeding arrangements for the gilt pool. Dr. Johnson is veterinarian partner and director of health at Carthage Veterinary Services, which gives him an expert perspective of gilt preparation in large sow networks in various countries. Welcome again, Dr. Johnson. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Just to reiterate some fundamentals from our first conversation, please. You said there that uh, the conception rates from our gilts should be the highest of any parity in the herd. That's quite a, a quite a challenge to us to achieve that. It's a challenge, Peter, but I think it's a very achievable challenge. If we set up our guilt development or our guilt acclimation programs appropriately, we'll have the conception rates that we want on those guilts. Uh, they've demonstrated time and time again they can be the best reproductive performers on the farm in terms of conception rates and feral rates. They've also demonstrated that if they aren't the best conception rates and feral rates, there's an opportunity there for us to go work on. And to achieve this is a matter of making sure the gilts are resistant to certain infections by the time of insemination. That's one of the critical steps, Peter. Uh, but honestly, to achieve that, really everything has to be going right within our gilt populations. We certainly need to manage the health of those animals effectively. We can't have those gilts at the time of reproduction have their immune system be taking more of the energy, more of the nutrients available to that gilt than what we would would normally expect. You know, some maintenance level of energy and nutrients and vitamins are going to go to the immune system system, but we really don't want the immune system begging for extra. We want all the extra at that point going into reproductive focus. We want that extra energy all shunted into the reproductive goals for that animal. We also really need to think about the reproductive preparation for those animals. We may have the health program perfectly figured out, but if we aren't doing boar exposure at a right age, if we aren't doing that every single day, consistently doing the boar exposure, if we aren't doing our heat checks appropriately to make sure we get a heat no service on every gilt before we actually breed them, we won't have the performance results we want, even if the health program is dialed in very well. Now, you, you described to me in our first conversation, you would break down the process in a way to guilt development and guilt acclimation. And the guilt development is of the physical body and the acclimation is the health of the animal, uh, in matching that to the herd, in, if you could say it that way. Uh, can I ask, when you're bringing the gilts in, in, in the situation we're describing, are we bringing them in directly to the proximity of the sow herd or are we bringing them into an isolation quarters at some distance away? Where are we bringing them to and at what age, ideally? 
Yeah. Ideal situation, Peter, I would tell you, we do want to bring them into some sort of isolation facility where if something happens to the health of those animals on the transport to your farm, you have the ability to identify that and remove those animals from your farm before they bring that pathogen into your resident herd. Uh, we typically would bring in gilts as weaned pigs, and we really would recommend that so that the health acclimation process can begin as early as possible in that gilt's life. So best case scenario, Peter, I want an isolation barn that is separate from my main farm. It may be connected to the main farm, but we have that connected door locked most of the time while those gilts are under quarantine, and we want to bring them in as weaned gilts three weeks of age. Now that isolation, therefore, has got to be a physical isolation, quite obviously, where they will stay for how long from three weeks until when? Yeah, a uh, minimum would be four weeks, but most common I see producers do is they'll build an isolation barn that'll hold more than one group of gilts at a time. And when I say group of gilts, I'm most commonly talking about four weeks worth of gilts. So we would bring in gilts every four weeks and we would always have two, the youngest two groups of gilts that we have on site, those two youngest groups would always be in that isolation or quarantine barn. I gotcha. And then uh, you're transferring them what? To a gilt developer unit or where do they go to from there? Yeah, that's exactly right. They would go to a gilt developer unit, which on many farms really is just a, a finishing barn, um, a commercial finishing barn that is set up with varying sizes of pens and varying uh, feed lines and feeder setups to ultimately try and help prepare those gilts from a reproductive standpoint. We'll graduate those gilts through the gilt developer. We'll move them from one stage to the next as we bring in new groups of gilts and that existing group gets older and older. And from a farm staffing uh, perspective, who has charge of the isolation and who does the work in the developer? That's a great question, Peter, and there's certainly not a universal answer. I would tell you that producers, to have, to have good guilt performance, producers and veterinarians, first and foremost, must value their gilts. So many times, Peter, we see farms and, and producers who uh, look at gilts kind of like the, uh, the McDonald's napkin. And, and the example I'm using here is when I go to McDonald's, I may, uh, you know, I may grab four napkins because I think I might need one or two. Well, producers sometimes will see their gilt population the same way. Well, I'll grab a bunch of them because I may need a couple of them. Those gilts are precious, precious items. They're the future of your farm. You have to value them and you have to designate caretakers to take care of them. Um, I do think for a farm that is uh, 5,000 head and greater, Peter, that gilt development uh, job is a full-time job. Um, and certainly the isolation is one of the easiest areas of the farm to have problems that go unnoticed in because you'll only have generally one person going into that area every day to look at those animals, do the chores, make sure the food, water, and treatments are all good, do the, collect the testing samples if we need to, but it's not like the rest of your gilt developer or your gestation or your farrowing where your manager will be walking through every day and you know, your, your section leads walk through every day and lots of people have a chance to catch problems. You need to put somebody you trust and somebody who has good observational skills assigned to your isolation building because they will be your eyes and ears. 
The other thing I encourage producers to look at, Peter, is to look at, at camera opportunities. Can you put uh, the live surveillance cameras into your uh, isolation unit so you can visualize those animals without physically going in there? You can identify out-of-feed events. You can identify um, situations that maybe aren't up to your expectation in terms of pig management and act on it. But I would tell you it's one of the biggest challenges we run into, Peter, when, when producers assign new employees or employees that maybe are, are not experienced enough to, to take on the responsibility of owning that isolation unit, knowing how to identify problems, diagnose them, and ultimately address the root cause of them, you're signing yourself up for some guilt development challenges. And nothing's more frustrating than when you open the door to that isolation barn and you bring a group of gilts out of that isolation barn that looked beautiful going in at three weeks of age. And now at maybe 11 weeks of age, they're coming out of there not looking beautiful anymore. And that's the future of your farm. What they look like, that's what your performance is gonna look like in the future. Okay. Yeah, so when they go in the isolation and then the developer, Dr. Johnson, I mean, what's your recommendation on identifying those animals? Do we need individual ID? We typically don't do individual ID unless those animals are purebred animals. So unless they're pedigreed animals that we really want to track the lineage of their, their mothers and their fathers over time, we typically won't do individual animal ID at that point, Peter. Um, we will do the individual animal ID at the time of selection. So that 20 week of age period where we'll go through and we'll make the final selection to decide who's gonna enter the herd as a desired breeding animal and who won't. We'll tag the ones that graduate from those step and the ones that we identify as non-selects, we simply won't tag those. What I do often recommend, Peter, is that producers use a tag at that weaning time to identify the age of the animal. And that's simply a tag that indicates the birth week of that particular animal. So if I'm bringing in an animal here right now, uh, we're in week two right now of our, of our year. If I'm bringing in a wing gilt, gilt today, I know she was born three weeks ago. So if I back up three weeks um, in, in this year, uh, this year is a bit unusual because we've got week 53. But if I, if I back up three weeks from there, she would have been born uh, in week 50, uh, let's see, 52. She would have been born in, in week 52. Um, so I would put a tag in, in every gilt that I got in this week in their ear that simply says 52. And that tag isn't their individual animal ID, but that tag serves as a visual reference for the rest of that animal's life of the exact age of that animal. And that's critical as we think about the flow through the gilt development and acclimation and breeding process. Animals that become too old need certain action steps taken to make sure that we either get them into the breeding herd or we remove them so they aren't taking up the space of a more reproductive animal. But I'm also thinking your tested surveillance you mentioned before, both in isolation and developer, batched samples, I assume, uh, not individual samples, for not individually identifying, but uh, you know, to have aged uh, uh, visual uh, signal of the age of the animals, that's very helpful to the guy or girl collecting those samples, isn't it? It is. 
Um, it, it helps you to understand that you're getting the samples from the correct animal. And you're right that we don't necessarily need the individual animal ID at that point because so often in those isolation testings, we're looking at population-based samples like our oral fluids that come from the ropes that we hang. Those oral fluids are going to collect samples from numerous different pigs, and we really are just interested to make sure the samples come from the right group, not necessarily a specific individual animal within that group. I'm with. So, are we taking samples weekly as a matter of course in isolation? What, what's the caretaker of that isolation quarters? What are you asking them to be doing? For uh, PED and the swine enteric coronaviruses, we'll typically test those very early in isolation. So about one week after entry into isolation, we'll do the oral fluids for PED because we'd expect those to be positive early. Uh, for PERS, we may wait a little bit longer. Uh, we may extend that out to the three-week time frame. We wouldn't necessarily collect samples every week. We would target a specific week post-introduction for that particular pathogen where we think the animals should be positive if they're going to have been exposed during the transport to our farm. And at the same time, we want to get that done as soon as we can so that if they are positive, we get them away from our sow farm as quickly as possible. And you talked about using cameras and I like that idea. What, what uh, advice, instruction, whatever is the right word to give to this caretakers? Uh, who's monitoring the cameras and what are they doing with what they see. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the cameras can be a bit controversial, so we do want to limit the number of people who have access to those. Um, I would typically say that that's a, a farm manager level um, job where the farm manager would have access to, to look at the, the cameras and evaluate the animals via that, that live video stream. I think it's very appropriate too for your, you know, your production management, the, the, the levels above your farm manager and your production system to also have access to that. And I think it's uh, appropriate for the veterinarian if, if you're an integrated system and your veterinarian's part of your team, allow them to have access to it as well. Um, I think uh, really in terms of what you want them to do about it, observations are great, but if they don't lead to action, they, then the cameras didn't do us any good. So that's where I say you want your farm manager to look at it because they have the resources to go fix problems. You know, they have an entire team of employees at the farm available to them to go address an issue in isolation as soon as the farm manager would observe it. Now, in addition to visual and uh, uh, on the spot observation and so on you could these days also use these things uh, which are artificial intelligence for recording uh, drinking activity or the sound of their coughing and these sort of things do any of these have a function in isolation or development they're going to, Peter. Um, I would say they're not commonly deployed in our isolation and guilt development units today, but you're absolutely on to the future of our industry and the future of, of many industries. Um, we're not alone in terms of our challenges with making good observations. Um, you know, healthcare workers that work with all species, including humans, are going to rely more and more on technology to help them with their observations. And where we can use artificial intelligence to try and understand things like visits to a watering station, visits to a feeder, uh, maybe even visits to a boar that is, you know, standing in the alley or some way positioned to, to evaluate for heat even when we're not there. There's a world of opportunity there. 
you mentioned the audio piece. Um, certainly, there's been a lot of work on trying to develop technologies that can monitor for the presence of respiratory disease inside a pig population. That's a challenging task because there's a lot of noise in pig barns. We've got feed systems running. We've got all sorts of uh, you know other reasons pig, pigs make noise. They tend to be kind of loud, loud critters. Um, so the there are technological hurdles to overcome there, but we've made a lot of progress on it. And I do think as we look forward, uh, Peter, we're absolutely going to see five, ten years down the road that those pieces of technology are standard implementation items across farms throughout the world. Let me pause for a moment to remind everyone that more information on this conversation, like articles, publications and videos, can be found on the website pers.com. Yeah, interesting. I, uh, let me just take a moment, please, if you will. I want to thank our listeners and our viewers for joining us. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Clayton Johnson from Carthage Veterinary Services in the States about guilt development and acclimation. Uh, and thank you to our listeners and viewers for joining us. Uh, Dr. Johnson, we're talking primarily for guilt about group housing, aren't we? We're not talking individual stall housing, but certainly not at the, the uh, isolation development stage. Uh, uh, what about foot health? Uh, do herd operators give enough thought to the type of flooring and whether or not bedding is provided? Yeah, the the type of flooring can be a challenge. Um, you'll certainly be tempted, particularly for your isolation or quarantine barns, where you expect to have young animals in there, to want to put plastic flooring in place. Uh, that can be a challenge for two reasons. Um, we know that those gilts have a bit of a tough transition moving on to slats sometimes from that plastic flooring. So uh, as they move out of their quarantine or isolation barn and come into our gilt development barn, you know that transition is going to be hard enough with the pathogen exposure, expecting them to, to also avoid any problems with foot health during that period is, is a big ask by us as producers. It also limits your ability to bring in older animals through those isolation barns if you just put plastic flooring in there. So maybe we get in a situation, Peter, where we need to eliminate a disease and we have to stop the gilt introductions for a period of time, but we still want those gilts. We just house them off site somewhere. And once we've eliminated disease out of our sow farm, we'll bring many ages of gilts back in the farm to refill that gilt development pipeline, if that makes sense. And if we have uh, slats, or concrete flooring in our isolation barn, we can use the isolation barn for just that, even for those older animals. But if it's only plastic flooring in there, I obviously can't put an animal that's uh, you know uh, bigger than the weight it can hold into that unit. Um, in the United States, you know we, we don't do a lot with bedding. Um, our, our manure uh, handling systems oftentimes uh, prevent us from really being able to do that. Certainly, we recognize that that's a, that's a bit of a challenge. We're asking animals to walk on concrete, um, and, and that's, a, that's a difficult thing for them to do. We really need to be vigilant of foot health. Uh, we need our caretakers to understand what various lesions of the foot look like and ultimately how we want to address them. What sort of topical therapies are there to try and help that foot recover? What sort of uh, systemic therapies may be necessary to prevent the development of a systemic infection? Because those foot issues, 
issues can absolutely destroy your guilt retention rate. What I mean by that is those guilts may come into your herd, you may breed them, but you may not be able to keep them long term because their lameness is an issue, their structure is an issue, and ultimately the root cause is that foot health problem. Yeah. Space, the amount of space in a pen per guilt, is that a critical factor? Absolutely critical factor, Peter. Um, you know, f uh, pigs are very much like goldfish in that they will often grow to the container size that you, you place them in. Um, and certainly when we think about space, we also think about water cup space. We think about feeder space. Um, that space need is very dynamic. And that's obvious if you think about how the size of a pig changes from a six kilogram wean pig all the way up to a 135 kilogram pig that you may say, I want to breed. The space needs, the volume of space needs for each individual animal are so great that we're going to make our facility design be customized to the space needs of the pig. Um, for a wean pig, we're probably looking at somewhere around 0.35 square meters per pig, Peter that we would build into those, you know, isolation facilities. So we'd build those to house those animals at that space. So three wieners per meter squared? Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't go any tighter than that. Let's put it that way. Um, and it depends on how long you'd like to keep them in that isolation barn. I would. And quarantine quarters for gilts in isolation and development. What, what special measures, if any, do we need for fresh air, ventilation, and so on. What what do we need to be doing to give them the right start in life? Yeah, we will typically, from a ventilation standpoint, follow the same goals that we have for our growing pigs. So we'll have a minimum ventilation need, a certain amount of cubic feet or cubic meters uh, of air that we need to move every single minute for those animals. That minimum ventilation need becomes critical in this time of year, in the winter, because we know that that's the only air we're moving. And minimum ventilation is simply meant to remove humidity and gases from the air. Those are the two goals of minimum ventilation, to keep that air fresh and to keep the humidity in the barn low. If we move too much air this time of year, we run a chance of drafting or chilling the pigs, um, or we're just burning too much propane. We're, we're wasting too much money on the expense to heat that barn. So dialing in that ventilation is really important for our gilts, the same as it is for our growing pigs. Fortunately, on the ventilation side, we can follow a lot of the same uh, targets and rules and expectations for our gilts as we do for our growing pigs. But in the development unit, we're also using the housing to stimulate the gilt towards estrus. Uh, you know, is our ventilation helping or hindering us with that stimulation? Great question. One of the examples that I'll often use with producers is if we have a problem with ventilation, it can one of the most common problems can be too much ammonia in the air. How does ammonia work in the pig? Well, ammonia actually helps to paralyze some of the receptors that will be responsible for smell. Um, you know, we notice it when we are in an area of too much ammonia as people. Our sense of smell is going to be negatively impacted by that ammonia. The gilts are going to be the same way. Why is that important? Smell is a huge component of reproduction. 
We don't appreciate it as people because we don't smell as good as pigs do. But if that guilt can't smell, she loses the ability to detect those boar pheromones. She may see the boar, she may recognize he's a boar, but if she loses the ability to smell those very special pheromones that are put out by the males in, in any species, and in this case boars, we're going to lose some of the power of that boar exposure. Simply put, if our ventilation is not correct, we may really have a negative impact on our ability to acclimate that, that guilt, or I should say develop that guilt, when we start that boar exposure process. We may not be able to detect when she's in heat because she can't smell the pheromones to then display the clinical signs of estrus. In addition to boar exposure, what sort of stimulus are you using in your Carthage units? Are you remixing groups just to change the peck order or do any of those things that we've always done? Yeah, we. it depends on the age of those gilts, Peter. Um, we'll start the boar exposure at about 165 days of age. And that boar exposure will continue daily for a period of, oh, let's call it at least six weeks. Um, and then at that point, we're going to look to those animals that haven't shown us any clinical signs of heat. And we're going to think, all right, what do we need to do to try and express heat in these animals? That's when we'll go to that mixing step. We'll do a mixing event to try and bring heat out in those animals. Um, and that's where those um, ear tags that I mentioned that, that identify the age of the gilt can be critical. That helps you to keep on track because you can look at a, at, a, at a gilt and say, okay, is she still in the window where only boar exposure is appropriate? Or is she at an age now where we need to do some mixing because we've got to progress her through the program. And if she doesn't graduate to the next step, eventually we call her out because she's identified to us that she's not a great reproductive animal. And it's just time to move on and look at another gilt for our breeds for that week. <laughs> and what skills show estrus or estrus as I would say, are they grouped in a new pan which is your guilt pool or how, how does that work? It, it depends Peter. Um, if that guilt is young and say in our world less than 280 pounds um, in kilograms I believe that would be somewhere in the about 120 to 125 kilogram range. Um, if the gilt is less than that in weight, when we identify the, the estrus, we will go ahead and mark that gilt. We will identify her, her heat no service event, but we'll leave her in that pen. We won't necessarily regroup her in most cases. The reason being, we want her to continue to eat. We want her to continue to gain weight. We don't want to stress her. We don't want to put her in a new pen with new pen mates that's going to result in stress. When they're above that weight threshold and we see that, that heat achieved, that's when we're going to generally move her to the, des the next destination. If it's a crated facility, uh, and many, many facilities are, they have crated gestations or individual stalls for the gestation period, that's when we'll start to acclimate them to those individual stalls. So if they're more than 120 to 125 kilograms, they will come out of the pen and they'll go to a new home. If they're less than that weight, we'll document the estrus event, but we won't necessarily move them. We'll just look for that estrus event to come back around again in 21 days, then we'll evaluate weight again at that time. Okay, okay. Uh, some uh, quite often now sow herds have electronic sow feeders for their group gestation pens, and we therefore have to fit training of gilts to ESF in with our development acclimation and so on. How easy or difficult do you find that? I think it is difficult, but well worth the efforts to figure it out, Peter. 
Um, I say it's difficult uh, because it's not just saying that you want to do it. It really takes a commitment to making sure that your facility is designed to help you with that acclimation, that exposure, and, and ultimately that adjustment period. Um, you need to try and teach the gilts how to use your technology early in life. Pigs are no different than people. We are most curious when we're young. Life eventually uh, gives us negative consequences for being curious sometimes, and we become a little less curious the older we get, and pigs are very much that way. If you've got electronic feeding systems in your gestation, you really need to get replicas of that training stations into your gilt development unit, and you need to target those at young ages where gilts are curious, they're going to come up, they're going to play with the equipment, and whether it's a feeding station or a watering system or some sort of a, a gate that they need to be willing to walk through, you need to get that technology, that equipment in front of them early enough in life that they're curious and they will will uh, naturally go interact with the new uh, resource in their environment and learn how to use it. If you wait until they're older in life, they're going to be a little more stubborn on the training and it's going to be harder and you're going to see more negative consequences. What I mean by that, Peter, is a lot of times we will train them to use those feeding stations by forcing them to go through them to get fed. Well, if, if gilts can be stubborn and if they refuse to do that unless you're just actively pushing them through the station you know, once or twice a day, they may actually lose weight during that training period. And for a gilt that's you know, close to the age we want them to breed, that's the last thing we want to do is negatively impact their performance by having them lose weight. So it's critical to do. It's not easy to do and it does require an equipment investment into your guilt developer, but the rewards are so great that we have to go execute that. We have to break through those barriers and get that done. Okay, very quick aside on that. One of the things I've seen in practice is trying to recruit extra people to help with that training process and keep within the biosecurity of the herd. Yeah. Um, you know, the training is going to oftentimes be a two-person job. Uh, it's it's labor-intensive as you as you move those animals that are reluctant to go through the gates or go through the feeding system, whatever it is you're trying to teach them. A lot of times, that is a two-person job just simply to effectively move those animals in a way that's safe for the animal and safe for the person. Um, just like I said before, you have to value guilt development, and you have to be willing to put your best labor to ensure it gets done correctly if you want to have optimal guilt performance. Now time is pressing on I'm afraid Dr. Johnson but I do want to ask you we're feeding gilts to be the right body condition at the right time what's the latest thoughts on judging body condition are we using ultrasound for back fat are we use are we even weighing gilts or is it all eyeball eyeballing yeah, great question, Peter. And I would tell you it, it differs depending on where I'm at in the world. In the United States, I would tell you that it is most common probably that we use calipers today to identify body condition. And a caliper is a metal piece of equipment that's been uh, calibrated so that we set that on the last rib of the gilt or the sow or whatever animal we're trying to adjust, uh, identify the body condition on. And it sits there on a, a pivoting screw, if you will. And it's got two prongs that'll set on that last rib. And then there's a, a bar that will tell us on a scale what the body condition is of that animal. 
We see that being most common in the United States because it's fairly easy to train people on how to use it and the results can be very reproducible across different people and different experience levels. Um, I still see in Asia a tremendous amount of real-time ultrasound being used, Peter, and I think that's an excellent tool. Um, they're measuring millimeters of back fat, not only on their gilts, but also on their wean sows. And if you use that information, you can absolutely dial in your feeding strategies. You can segregate your animals appropriately. And I, I, any producer that's using real-time ultrasound, I would say there's no need to go away from that. Um, to estimate gilt weights, uh, we do see a lot of what are called girth tapes. And those would be tapes, kind of like a measuring tape, Peter, that, it, that you place around the, the chest of the animal. And then the size of their chest uh, diameter, or if I should say their chest circumference, will allow us to infer a certain body weight. Uh, those are reasonably accurate, but if you have a scale that you can use, if you can use an individual animal scale to get a more accurate weight rating, I would say use the scale. We used tapes years ago, and it wasn't the accuracy. It was a fiddle of getting the tape rather than sell those pigs that was the reason we stopped. But anyway, I'm going to go on to feed some cells then, please. Uh, you know, ideally, I guess we'd have feeds formulated specially for gilts, um, for gilts before and after breeding and so on. Uh, if we did that in an ideal world, would these, these feeds have special characteristics that you would be able to identify what would they contain protein yeah. energy what yeah and i i am certainly not a nutritionist so there are people far no, more qualified to, to answer this than me but from my perspective peter uh, the feedback i get from nutritionists is during the nursery feeding phases we really don't make a, any sort of adjustments to the diets compared to commercial pigs so uh, for the first eight weeks post weaning or so, the diets will mimic commercial pig diets for that age. Once we get into the finishing stage, we will increase some of the nutrient levels, uh, maybe some of the amino acid levels, specific amino acids like lysine may be increased relative to commercial pig diets for those growing gilts. Um, and in, in gestation, uh, I think we typically are going to see just one diet fed in gestation. Uh, we won't see a lot of top dressing or anything unique. Lactation is where we get again into kind of a, a differentiation area. Uh, the parity one animals in lactation do have an increased lysine need a lot of times relative to their, their cohorts, their older, older parity sows in those same lactation units. Some systems will handle that with a top dress. So they'll give all their, their P1s in the farrowing house a specific card and somebody will come through and top dress. Uh, some other systems will just formulate the entire lactation ration to meet the gilt needs, knowing that they are slightly overfeeding the sow in doing so. And I've seen producers be successful with either approach. We've got to end it there, I'm afraid, Dr. Johnson. We could continue for a good long time yet, but I think our listeners and viewers would uh, probably say we'd better stop there. But may I say many thanks indeed for your observations and your insights and so on on preparing our guilts. And uh, you set us some pretty stiff targets. And uh, I like also the details. I like the, the ear tags and those sort of things and the cameras and whatever. These are all things which we didn't used to do and I can see how well they fit in. And as you say, we've gone a long way towards heat, uh, health matching. 
of gilts and hurts and, and uh, the, with the tests and diagnostics we've got available. So many thanks indeed to Dr. Clayton Johnson of Carthage Veterinary Services. Thank you again to our viewers and listeners. It's been great that you've joined us. There will be more episodes of Meet the Expert coming along, but for the moment, goodbye, stay tuned. want to remind you that more information on this conversation, like articles, publications and videos, can be found on the website pers.com.